And I think that's in, in, informed a lot of what has um, come since because I felt the burden of not being able to, to be myself and creating this sort of artificial uh, prison for myself, the proverbial closet. And um, I, I think I, you know, in terms of my professional life and how that relates to what I do now, um, I think a museum needs to be a, a place where people can be themselves and that promotes expression and individuality and, um, you know, is, is a place that where people can be them true, their true selves. Mm-hmm. And that's, that goes, that's true of the programming that we offer. And that's also needs to be true of the, the art that we put on the walls. There's nothing more personal than artistic expression. This is Kashara, and you are listening to Undiscovered Worth, the podcast. In this episode, I speak with the director of the Birmingham Museum of Art, Graham Betcher, and we discuss how the experiences during his 20s have influenced his current mission to shift museum culture to be a more inclusive space. I hope you enjoy. As always, be sure to rate, subscribe, and share with your friends. So... I know that you went to Yale mm-hmm. and you studied German studies. That's right. So how does how do you get to that point where you're like, let me study this? Well, I arrived at, at Yale thinking that I was going to be pre-med. And I recently <laughs> found an article. I was home in Washington State visiting my parents just last week. And they had been cleaning out the attic. And they found... Uh, a whole bunch of old newspaper articles from when I was in high school Mm -hmm. and there was a newspaper article uh, about uh, my going to Yale um, published my senior year and it said said that I had selected it for its excellent pre-med program in hindsight I mean I just had to shake my head because (laughs) I, I just can't even imagine myself being a physician yeah um, I ended up being a doctor but a PhD in art history and I think that you know when I selected Yale it was with the idea that I, that I was going to be a physician because you know where I grew up and my background that seemed like a good profession and mm-hmm. something that I could you know make a difference doing and that it would provide me with a good life and um, got I got to Yale and I had had a very very outstanding German teacher in high school um, Frau Weichi, uh, Kate Weichi, and she was uh, amazing I think she won maybe not once but twice the top language teacher in the state wow. uh, award in Washington State and I, I knew that I wanted to continue studying German um, but I was interested in the, the lang- not just the language but the history and mm-hmm. the culture and the art in particular and the literature and Yale had just launched a uh, a brand new German studies major where you could have a formal concentration in an area like art history. And so I, I realized pretty quickly um, after you know meeting some of the people that actually uh, did end up becoming physicians mm-hmm. and surgeons <laughs> and who were pre-med and stayed the course that my 
talents were were in a different area, not in the sciences, yeah. um, but really in in the arts. And that became clear when I had my first art history class. And so I decided to kind of marry my interest in German culture and in in um, language with my interest in in art and um, became a German studies major with a focus in Northern European art history. And then later that kind of morphed into um, working on American art because there really aren't that many positions for experts in mm. uh, you know German art in the United mm. States. There are many more uh, opportunities for scholars of American art. So I kind of came into American art through the back door as an expert on uh, American artists who e were either born in or worked in Germany. Oh, that's cool. And so I wrote about uh, for my dissertation uh, Emmanuel Leutze's Washington Crossing the Delaware and oh. other paintings by him, but he was a German born American artist who ended up creating an icon, um, even though he was, a, he was an immigrant, yeah. like so many important American artists. Yeah. So. I think you're probably the third or fourth person that I know of who's a creative, I consider you're creative, um, you. <laughs> but who originally was on like this track to medicine or science. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of goes back to that connection between art and science. I, I think it's ways. definitely there <laughs> and I'm a big advocate for, you know, STEAM instead of STEM. Everyone mm -hmm. talks about STEM and that we've got to, you know, get kids in, involved in the, the hard and applied sciences. but. The art is really important too because it teaches close looking and critical thinking. It really does, yeah. 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 So I, I'm glad. I'm glad though that I kind of took stock of what my real interests were. That's not to say that it couldn't have happened later. I know people mm -hmm. that have had major career shifts, even in the other direction. I had a friend who went. We were undergrads together at Yale, and then he went on to get a master's in uh, American history from Yale and became an a American history teacher, um, high school level. Mm -hmm. And he, after about mm, eight years of doing that, he decided that his real calling was medicine. And he took the all the crazy, you know, uh, courses you have to do to kind of yeah. get your sciences uh, up to a certain level before you apply to med school. And he applied to med school. Now he's a physician living in northern New England. And That's his amazing. sister and father are both <laughs> physicians. So he did ultimately follow in the family footsteps, though he had a different path to begin with. So it's never, never too late. I just feel fortunate that I, I figured it out a little earlier, like mm. what I really wanted to, to do. Yeah. So. What do your parents do? My mother just retired uh, working at a community college. She worked in the business office as a, as a cashier. So she was like processing, yeah. um, processing uh, loan payments and, and uh, disbursements to students. Um, but that that was a more recent position. She's only been doing that for about, I say only, uh, for about uh, 15 or 16 years. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, she ran uh, a family business, uh, beer and wine wholesale company. Cool. And uh, that's actually what my dad did as well. It was my mother's family business. Uh, my father worked for the business um, when my parents were married the first time and so they were they were married for 17 years then they were apart for 27 years really and then they got remarried um, so my dad also worked in the beer and wine wholesale industry but after my parents divorced yeah uh, he went to work for a different different company um, but in the same industry and so they're they're remarried now I think about 
let's see, they've been remarried for about six years now. That so deserves I, like a romance comedy movie. It, it feels that way. And I performed the marriage ceremony. Aww. So I'm ordained on the internet and I performed <laughs> three marriages and that was the second marriage I performed. That's so, amazing. Yeah. That's really kind of funny. Yeah. It, it's, it, 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 I kind of couldn't believe it when it happened, yeah. to be honest, because I was just like, well, like, what? wait, yeah. <laughs> I've gotten very used to the idea of my parents being apart and now yeah. they're a unit again, which makes holidays a lot easier i'll say i bet i always just like ask like sad questions oh please so that yeah, probably I love will be that. part of the interview yeah. but um <laughs> so what was it like moving across the country to yale was that the first time you'd ever moved that far away from home and like what was that experience there i was really lucky that i had um an opportunity the summer before my senior year to be an exchange student in finland so I lived in Finland the summer before my senior year of high school. Um, at the end of that time, I got to travel to the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet wow. Union uh, before the Iron Curtain fell. And so that was a really great um, life experience to, to be away from home to, and, and especially in a culture that was so foreign, mm-hmm. um, where the language was, you know, the Finnish language is really, really difficult to learn. I only, you know, learned, you know, basic things yeah. like, you know, uh, 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 miso and vese, where's the restroom, <laughs> things like that, you know, necessities. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up speaking a lot of German because um, my host father and host sister spoke German. My host brother and host mother spoke English. And so at the dinner table on a given night, there would be three languages. They would speak to one another in wow. Finnish. I would speak to half of the family in German and half of the family in English. It's very interesting. So I, so I guess that, that was good preparation for mm-hmm. going away to school. Um, and, uh, being a German studies major, I also spent a lot of time abroad. I spent the summer um, before my uh, senior year of college uh, living um, near the Polish border in Germany mm-hmm. in a little village called Bartin. Lived in a castle and helped with the renovation of the castle. But I think the thing that was the most different um, for me about going to, um, to Yale is where I grew up in Washington State is was not a particularly diverse atmosphere. Mm. Um, it was most people were you know religiously they were were Christian, mostly Protestants, most mostly Lutherans because it was such a uh, it was a place where a lot of um, Swedes and Norwegians settled. And you know, and then there was my family who were the, the also Lutheran but Germans, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know a few Catholics, very few uh, Jews. It was a very small Jewish community. I think in my high school there was one Jewish student. And then in terms of of race, in, out of there were 185 people in my class, there was one. Uh, I, I won't say African American, African Canadian. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, he was from his family was from British Columbia. Mm-hmm. I grew up very near the border, and so uh, so he would. But he was the only um, black student in our class, and I think in the entire high school, maybe three other kids. Mm. Um, one of them, who had a mixed heritage, uh, Latino, African American, and Native American. Wow. 
Um, and then, so the, and the largest uh, minority group were Latinos, um, mm. and most of them being descendants from uh, former migrant workers who had come to the United States and built lives here and businesses and families. And, um, but even then, that was a relatively small group of people by the numbers. So it was a very um, homogenous or mm. seemingly homogenous community. Yale couldn't have been more different in terms of race, religion, geographic mm-hmm. um, diversity, uh, political diversity, meeting, meeting people who had every mindset, every worldview. Um, it was a, I, I learned probably more in my first you know, few months at Yale than I had in my four years uh, in high school about people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel like I had a good academic background yeah. in high school, but a lot of the people that I went to high school with, they were born and raised in the Skagit Valley. Their parents and grandparents were born and raised in the Skagit Valley, and that was certainly, you know, my dad went to the same high school I did. Uh, his uh, his siblings all went there. His, you know, my family moved from the Midwest to the Skagit Valley in the mm-hmm. 1930s, and there, there they stayed. And so I love the fact that when I got to college, I was meeting people who had seen and done and experienced so many different things, and that that re- affirmed my my choice that leaving mm-hmm. um, the area was was the right decision for me really opened my eyes to a lot of a lot of new things and I think that that's I've continued to to crave life experiences that you know kind of take me outside of the the box I think even coming to to Birmingham um, was you know in terms of being open to living in a part of the country that is very different Mm -hmm. um, from where I grew up and um, I've loved every minute of it it's been a really positive thing for me. I feel like I've become sort of an ambassador <laughs> for the city and sing sing the city's praises um, every chance I get. Um, yeah. it's, it feels like home. Would you say that there's any, like, one experience that really impacted you in some way, like, while you were in college, between then and also, I guess, or also living here in Birmingham? Wow. Um because I feel like there's always, I'm only 25, but mm-hmm. I can think of a few time, like moments that have been very like defining in the way that I've thought about things and like completely changed my mindset or shifted. Yeah, I think. I mean, I th- there are, there are a number of experiences I think that have uh, in, informed me. I think. I mean, some of it, and not you know. Well, I guess that you know, I can be as personal as I as I, yeah. I want to be with this. Um, a defining moment for me um, was coming out of the closet, hmm. and that is, I realized that I was at a, a certain point kind of living a a fairy tale of of myself, and rather than being myself. Yeah, uh, and it took me a long time to acknowledge that I didn't come out until I was twenty nine. Um, I by the point that I came out, I had my weight had ballooned to four hundred and forty five pounds. 
Really? Yeah, and I had essentially built a closet out of out of fat and flesh um, because I think at some point that was my protection like that you know being that overweight and I'm not projecting on anyone else but yeah. myself this is my my story and everyone you know everyone has a different story I felt that when I really thought about it and you know and and I was fortunate to have great support this was all when I was in grad school and so I had the support of you know the the Yale Health Plan, and I had a you know therapist that I could see, and a nutritionist, and a primary care provider. I've never been better supported in terms of my health, but really talking through um, the the issue of you know being myself and coming out and owning um, my story and owning my sexuality, and um, and you know one year from the day. Of coming out of the closet, I was a hundred pounds lighter. Wow! I lost a hundred pounds in one year through diet and exercise, because quite, quite literally, when I came out, it felt as if a weight had been lifted. Yeah. I felt it immediately, and I could finally. What's the name of that movie? Waiting to exhale. <laughs> I exhaled. I mean, I really, I finally exhaled. It felt like I had been holding my breath um, from age twelve through twenty nine. Wow. And uh, it was um, liberating, invigorating, and um, I think that experience, and I was very, very fortunate, like I said, to have great, a great support network. My family was great. The only person keeping me in the closet was me. Mm. It wasn't, I, I faced no, zero repercussions from family and friends. Um, and I, I had nothing but love and, and support. So my only regret is that I didn't muster the courage to, to be myself yeah. sooner. Um, and I think that's in, in, informed a lot of what has um, come since because I felt the burden of not being able to, to be myself and creating this sort of artificial uh prison for myself the proverbial closet and um i i think i you know in terms of my professional life and how that relates to what i do now um i think a museum needs to be a, a place where people can be themselves and that promotes expression and individuality and um you know is is a place that where people can be them true their true selves, mm-hmm. and that's that goes that's true of the programming that we offer, and that's also needs to be true of the the art that we put on the walls. There's nothing more personal than artistic expression, yeah. And it's and it's an act of bravery in many ways for for an artist to to bear their soul either in in paint or in in uh, you know a plastic form in mm-hmm. sculpture. Um, what what have you? And, and I mean, that's just the visual arts, the performing arts, uh, the same yeah. way. And so it's, um, I think the in that way, the the personal becomes professional. Yeah. So, can I ask you a question? I've never asked anybody this. Yeah. So, in terms of like, you said that you didn't experience any like repercussions or anything from coming out. Was it more of you didn't want to come out because you weren't sure how others would react or was it more of a fear of living in your truth? I think it was a, I think it was a fear of living in my truth. 
to be honest. Because, and I think, you know, going back to the idea that I was going to be, uh, you know, pre-med at Yale, I think I'm the first person in my family to graduate um, from college. My parents both went to a little bit of college and then left to, you know, raise a family and then they went into the family business. And uh, my brother finished college, and he's older, but I finished before he mm. did, so I could say I'm the first person <laughs> in my family to graduate from college. And I didn't really have, I had parents who were supportive, um, but they didn't really kind of do what I now find out through, you know, friends who have college-age kids, what, what parents, I guess, are supposed to do. And, you know, uh, take their kids on college visits and mm. make a short list of what schools do you want to apply to and approach it. My parents were like, ah, oh, you know, yeah, we know you want to go to college. Like, you'll handle that. And uh, and so it, I think in my mind, I had kind of built up this, you know, uh, sense of what, you know, like, okay, I'm the, I'm, I, I do well in school. I'm the, you know, valedictorian in my high school class. Mm. And People who, you know, are top students, they become doctors and lawyers. Mm -hmm. So I better become a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. And at no point did I really sit down and, and take stock of, of, you know, what I was really interested in and what my true talents were. And it was the same thing with respect to how I saw myself. It's like, well, I'm going to be a doctor and then I'm going to get married and I'm going to have two kids and I'm going to have a nice <laughs> house and a nice car and that th these are all the markers of success. So I, this idea of the, you know, the quote unquote American dream had somehow impacted the way that I thought I needed to live my life to be mm. considered a success. What that was doing to me though was, um, it was killing me yeah. because it wasn't authentic. It was, it was someone else's dream and not my own dream. And once I really took stock of the fact, um, you know, the reason I, I finally did come out is because I, I could feel myself dying a slow death. And I, I don't mean for that to sound overly dramatic, but you know, remember I said I was 445 yeah. pounds. I was, it was taking a toll mm -hmm. on my body and also on my, on my psyche. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really, it was um, incredibly lonely. Um, and even though I had plenty of friends, it was just in terms of having any sort of a, you know, more meaningful relationship that just was, my walls were up. Yeah. Um, the closet door was firmly shut. And so that, um, it's the best it's the best and maybe most profound um, decision I've ever made in my life um, but it was all you know in my particular case if I was the only thing standing between me and my own happiness yeah um, so with that entire experience collectively and now that you are over the museum mm -hmm. um, I guess in what ways specifically are y'all trying, or you, what initiatives are what initiatives are you pushing to, essentially free others and make them feel like they can be more themselves in a place where, historically, it's been an institution where, 
it's felt like it's only been for specific people. It, you, I mean, you're, you're so correct. I mean, this institution by, by statute, by city statute, for the first 12 years of its existence um, was only for whites except for one day a week. Mm. And uh, that's a legacy that we've really had to work hard to address. And we're not done working hard to address it um, because there are still people um, alive and well and living right here around us who remember what it was like to be turned away because they didn't come on the right day. Um, And so one of the biggest things is repeating over and over again the idea that this museum belongs to the people. This is, this is the museum for everyone, and I want people to have a sense of belonging. So some of this is just the message that, that I, I'm going to keep saying until people really um, hear and embrace it, um, because I don't think it can be said enough um, mm. at this point in our history. Um, you know, this museum belongs to everyone, and it is... It, people should feel as comfortable and welcome coming here as they do sitting on their living room couch watching Netflix. Yeah. Um, and so that's part of it is the message and just repeating that over and over again. Another big part of it is the programming and making sure that our programs um, are, are diverse and diverse in all their forms. One of the things that people are talking a great deal about these days. And in fact, I'm speaking on a panel organized um, by the Community Foundation of Greater Birmingham, a panel discussion that actually will take place here at the museum tomorrow over lunch, and it's on the concept of cultural equity. Mm. And that cultural institutions need to make sure that their resources are equitably distributed among the communities they serve and that and that speaks to all aspects of of resources and that you know it goes to making sure that you know your hiring practices are are equitable that the programs you offer the public are are equitable and that they're not they're not you know kind of lopsided so Mm -hmm. that let's say that you're let's say that you're in a museum in New York and you're serving a largely Latino community um, and but all of your programming is about I don't know Russian icons yeah and you're like oh, that's you know maybe not the right right match for the audience um, you serve but let's say though that you have a Russian community mm-hmm. as well um, and so the the goal is to make sure that you're your offerings as an institution um, are are matched um, as best as uh, fairly, um, and I know fair is a subjective term, um, and so that's why you have to be very upfront about things. Is because fair the fairness is going to be decided by the community. Yeah. How fair has the institution been been to them in how they've allocated their resources? Um, in terms of Birmingham Museum of Art specifically, uh, I want this institution to be a place where people can have conversations. And it doesn't, yes, I like to use the art as a springboard, mm-hmm. and I, you know, of course we're always going to have artist talks and bring in 
you know, a wide array of artists and art historians to speak about what we've got in the collection. But I also really, really like and embrace the concept of the museum as a, a, uh, as a commons, mm. as a place where people can come together from our community and talk about things that matter to the community or the communities. I mean, this is not, the community is not a, you know, there is the, the one community that we're all part of. Well, actually right. multiple communities. We're all, we're all human. We, we live in Birmingham, yeah. you know, so there are multiple, but there are multiple communities. The commu- I mean, you know, just living in an apartment building on Highland Avenue, there's the community of the people that are my immediate neighbors yeah. that I see when I go to O'Henry's in the morning or when I go to Rojo. Uh, for dinner. Um, so I, you know, communities, plural, is probably more accurate. And um, so I, we're making progress. Um, I, you know, one thing I'm keeping in mind, though, is that in, in embracing and enfranchising various communities, you have to keep the flag waved high. Mm. You can't rest on your successes, and uh, you know it was uh, it was uh, T. Marie who talked about the Christmas tree moments, and that, and she, she said that all too often when um, when institutions like the museum reach out, in this case specifically to the African American community, mm. it's you know oh we're gonna you know we're gonna do an event. And y'all come, mm-hmm. and then we'll pat ourselves on the back afterwards. Yeah. These are my, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but that's what she referred to as the Christmas tree moment. And that really stuck with me because if I'm being totally honest um, and, and, you know, somewhat uh, you know, analytical of, of how we've served many communities in the past, it's it's in fits and starts. And I think that that's, that it's there's no malice behind that at least not in, in recent mm-hmm. recent years um, whatsoever but it's also the nature sometimes of the the way that museum programs are are scheduled someone has an idea and you go and find the funding for it and then you you kind of wrap it up in a with a bow at the end and put it on a shelf okay we did that <laughs> moving on to the next yeah. thing and the next thing because we're a survey museum might be completely different. Mm-hmm. It could be in a totally different arena. Um, I think it's, and so I don't want to be too critical uh, of, you know, of the way things have, have been done. And, and you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. I've been here 11 and a half years. And I'm, I know for a fact that there are things that I haven't been consistent with. And it's not for lack of, uh, you know, thinking about it. Uh, or, or good intentions, but it's just, it, it, you have to have the, the time, the resources, it needs to be very, very intentional. So I think the, the you know, people talk about the, the big, hairy, audacious goal, like the yeah. pie in the sky goal. The, the thing we're striving for is to be more, more intentional, more consistent, and to never rest on our laurels. To, you know, when we finish one um, successful program immediately asks the question, "What's next?" And that's not to say I, I am I am certain that we will make mistakes. I am certain that 
on one occasion or another, we will fail to mobilize quickly enough, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that we should throw in the towel. You, we have to be you know, consistent and persistent um, to, to build an audience. And that's the other big thing we're striving for. I, I want, uh, in another four years time, I wanna see 180,000 people come through our doors every year. Right now we're around uh, 123,000 people a year. So that's a big, hairy, audacious goal, as they yeah. call them too, is to, you know, to, to try to, to welcome that many more people through our doors. I think we can do it. Um, but it's only through, through making people aware, making it known far and wide that there is, not only, is this muse, not only does this museum belong to the people it serves, but there's really something here for every, every taste, every interest. Um, and not everyone has to like everything. Yeah. And not everything is for everyone. I mean, in, good. Theory, yeah. in, in theory, great. If someone is so broad, so open-minded and has such a broad worldview that they like everything, that's great. But there is a certain arrogance to people thinking that everything is for them. And I'll give you a case in point, something that I, that I was reading about recently. There was apparently an animated short um, that and I wish I could remember all the, the details. Oh, this animated short uh, mm -hmm. made by an Asian American film director, and it was of a an Asian mother who loved cooking for her child, and the child went away, and so she made this little dumpling, mm -hmm. and the dumpling sort of came to life, and she nurtured the dumpling, and then I think ultimately she ended up eating the dumpling, um, but the. Uh, the movie really resonated with uh, with Asian Americans. I mean, there's. I mean, I think there are hashtags about Asian mothers, you know, <laughs> and the feeling and, and and how they nurture through food culture, and so it it had it really resonated with the audience it was intended for, mm -hmm. and then white folks were like, oh, I didn't get that, I didn't understand that. Well, guess what? It wasn't <laughs> for you. You know, and yeah. there's this like not everything is for, you know, one group or another. It's okay to have things that are are just for one audience, yeah. primarily, and 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 I think we need to acknowledge that that you know it's okay for the museum um, to host an event that really. Uh, shows respect for and embraces one particular culture. Of course, everyone's going to be welcome. Mm -hmm. We have an open door policy. Everyone's welcome to everything. But and that and that even goes to just people's differing tastes with art. I remember I got in a conversation once. We had an exhibition of early American art up on the walls, and um, it was uh, you know portraits of the founding fathers and the famous painting of the signing of the Declaration mm -hmm. by John Trumbull. It's a lone exhibition from Yale, and I had someone c kind of come at me, and I put it that way because it was like they were really kind of riled up, and they're like, "Well, you tell me why I should come see this exhibition. I I really like modern art, and so tell me why I should bother <laughs> with this." And my answer was, "You shouldn't." I said, if, if you're not 
you know, open to experiencing this and, and you really, you know, have one, one like and mm -hmm. one like only, then, you know, hold out for when we have a show that really appeals to your interests. You know, it's like, you know, if someone is a, you know, a dyed in the wool uh, college football fan and, you know, hates, I don't know, let's say soccer. Yeah. I'm not, why force him to go to a, a soccer uh, <laughs> match? I mean, it's just like, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you how to choose to spend your time. Yeah. Time is precious. So it's okay if you don't like something. You know, this museum tries to offer as many different opportunities as possible, but I don't suffer from the delusion that every person is going to like everything all of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we can keep our offerings um, varied enough that we can, that we can have something, um, you know, on a regular basis that, that most people will enjoy or, or that periodically that some people will enjoy, that, that's great. That's the nature of having a, a diverse collection. And I think it's also the, the, at the heart of, of you know, cultural equity, mm -hmm. that you have a varied approach, that it's not, not a homogenous uh, institution. So um, I, you know, I, people should, uh, I think, you know, my, my preference is that people will be just open-minded enough that they'll give something a chance mm -hmm. that maybe is, is, you know, challenging for them because, you know, I've seen, I've seen that have real rewards for people. For example, I've told people about Barber Motorsports, largest collection of motorcycles, I think in the, in the United States, if not the world, just out in Leeds, incredible museum. I've heard of that, yeah. And... I, you know, have visitors uh, very frequently from all over the country, art visitors, directors, curators, patrons of other museums, and they come to Birmingham and I said, well, you know, I want to take you out to Barber Motorsports. And they're like, they think they're like what? Like, <laughs> motorsports? And I said, oh, it's a, it's a motorcycle museum. And they're like, uh, I don't know. That's, I'm not really that interested in motorcycles. And I just said, please, please just trust me. <laughs> it's, it's like an art museum. I said, you, you've got to see this to really understand it. And so they, they place their trust in me and I take them there and I can't, I can't drag them away. We usually <laughs> end up like having the guards come after us, you know, right before closing and be like, uh, you've got three minutes. And, and it's just because it's until you experience it, you know, it sounds one way like, oh, you know, do I have to, to be interested in motorcycles, do I have to ride a motorcycle? What if I've mm -hmm. never been on a motorcycle? But aesthetically, these things are beautiful and yeah. they're displayed beautifully. And so they are works of art in a sense. And so if you're interested in art, there's a chance that if you give motorcycles a chance and appreciate the, the design mm -hmm. and the beauty that goes into them, then maybe maybe you'll enjoy it and most of the times i think all of the times <laughs> that i've taken people there they've really loved it so yeah i'm gonna have to go down there i have a friend she's really into cars her and her husband are and so she's been telling me like you should go over there and i'm like okay I'll, i will but it just seems so far out to me yeah it's a yeah it it's a little ways out but then you can like usually when i go out there i'll like double up and do some outlet store shopping and mm. go to like uh ralph lauren <laughs> or you know polo whatever um so i make a make a day trip out of it yeah yeah i have so. to do that but, um last question sure. what has this new 
it's relatively new, mm-hmm. the position you're in now, yeah. taught you about leadership and about yourself? Oh, I think about leadership is you constantly have to work at it. Mm. Um, there, you know, you, I pointed at the, you know, stack of books on my shelf that are all about different management styles and, and leadership styles and, you know, uh, ways of improving co- communication. And it is, um, it's a constant work in progress. And, and I think that's good. I, I hope that, you know, years from now when I, if I ever re- Retire. I may be one of those people that they, you know, find me slumped over the keyboard one day um, because I do love what I do. And the idea, you know, I've been thinking a lot about retirement because my mom finally retired uh, and we were talking about this. And, and I said, I just, I love what I do so much that it, I, I, I may, I, I can't ever see myself retiring. Now, talk to me 20 years from yeah. now, maybe I'll feel differently. But, um, but it's a, I, I do hope that throughout my career I keep striving to um, be a better communicator, um, and and I, and part of that, part of what goes with that territory is not being afraid to try things, and, and even if you make mistakes, um, I, I've told one reporter who interviewed me right when I became director is that. Uh, my biggest fear is inaction, is mm. not acting, not doing anything. I don't want to be a, a lame duck director. I want to make sure that the institution is, is trying new things. And, um, you know, even if they, you know, we try it on for size and it, it's not a good fit, but at least we've tried it. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a big part of it in terms of what I've learned is that leadership is you know, it's not, no one just hands you a, you know, some sort of a magic hat or a wand or anything. It's like, I okay, wish. yeah, if only <laughs> that it's, it's a, it's a constant work in progress. And then what have I learned about myself? Um, I, I have learned, I think this is something that is just, um, starting to sink in uh, for me is that uh, when you're in the, the the leadership role as a director um, people watch what you're doing very closely and and by that I mean even something as like I'm a I'm, I'm a workaholic mm. and I think that it's important to to model good behavior and I keep um, telling uh, members of our team to strike a, a good life work balance. Um, I've even you know, called people's offices and said, are you still here, go home. <laughs> but someone told me recently that the reason that people are doing this is because they see me doing it. And they think mm. that that's what's expected of me. And so a lot of leaders say, and I'm guilty of saying this as well, do as I say, not as I do. But when it, I need to start doing yeah. um, what, I, what I say, you know, in terms of, you know, the, every day is a new day. Mm-hmm. The work will, will still be there. And this is not to say I don't, I, I enjoy working hard and putting in a full day's work. But I also am starting to, to understand that it's really important for everyone 
uh, not just in museums, uh, but in you know any industry, to um, sit down just kind of the same way that you know reading your story and how you started your website and and you know take stock of the five things that you that you value that you want mm-hmm. to do, and I think it's important for people to take stock of you know the things that they value outside of work and um, because we in this culture we all in some ways become our identity becomes synonymous with our profession that's the first thing a lot of people ask one another it's like what what do you do Mm -hmm. what do you do and then people read in um, from from that like uh, and uh, you know I, I don't know that it's a healthy thing. Remember in the Ray Bradbury novel, Fahrenheit 451, all books were banned. And so people had to become the book, essentially, that they memorized. And so this person would be the Wizard of Oz, and this person would be War and Peace. And, you know, um, and I don't, I don't know that, you know, it's, I'm very proud of, you know, what I do for a living. But I think it's also important for for all of us um, to take stock of our values outside of our professional life and make sure that we make time for those things as well, whether it's a, you know, a hobby or a sport that we're passionate about or, or you know, certainly our, our family and our friends being at the top of the list. So that's a kind of a recent, recent lesson um, because I've, and I think maybe that's been on my mind even more since I just got home from a week of seeing my parents in Washington State and um, it is it is always really nice to go home and I yeah. only do it once a year and it maybe it'd be nice to do it twice a year <laughs> so yeah so that's I'm sure there are other other things that that uh, you know I've learned but that's that's on the top of my mind that's a good one yeah well thank you yeah thank you You've been listening to Undiscovered Worth, the podcast. If you enjoyed, be sure to rate, subscribe, and share with others. Also, be sure to follow Undiscovered Worth on Instagram and Facebook.